quick powerlifting plug. So first of all, uh, thanks to Alex Nadalna, who was the meet director at the most recent Line Invitational. Once again, we had great kids working hard, celebrating each other, celebrating personal records and milestones in their lives. It was just a cool, cool event. Look forward to April 10, which is the Bears Invitational in Winnetka, Illinois, hoping for more of the same. And again, April 13, we're heading out to Minnesota to host the second annual collegiate powerlifting meet at St. Olaf College. Finally, keep an eye out. We are going to start publicizing a June 9 5K to raise funds and awareness for all the efforts of the Good Athlete Project. We will be sharing more via Instagram and Twitter, so make sure to follow us at Coach the Number Four Kindness. That's Coach for Kindness. Welcome to the Good Athlete Podcast, the voice of the Good Athlete Project. I met today's podcast guest the way I meet all of our podcast guests, which is on a tram between flights in Dallas, Texas. And that is kind of a joke. Uh, Riley will get it, but maybe nobody else. Long story short, I was traveling down to Oklahoma to compete in a powerlifting meet myself, and between delayed flights, I jumped on a tram and just struck up a conversation with someone who very quickly into that conversation, I recognized was special. Riley Dampier is beginning her third season at Oklahoma City High Performance Center in her 11th year coaching rowing. I knew from the moment I started talking to her that this was an elite human with high expectations of her athletes who just happened to be on that same tram. She's building a strong development program for rowing in the United States, down in Oklahoma City, in fact. Her various national team athletes have been at events like seniors, U23, U19 World Championships, the Pan Am Games, and World Cups. Dampier came to Oklahoma in 2016 from Washington, D.C., where she was the coach of a high-performance club rowing program for eight years. She's coached many athletes to the podium at national championships, national selection regattas, and other international events like Henley Rowing Regatta and the Australian National Championships. She's a participant in the U.S. Olympic Committee National Team Coach Leadership and Education Program, and she has expertise in training program development, technical coaching, and innovation in integrating emerging science in rowing. But she's not satisfied. She's about to start a Master of Science program next month in coaching leadership. Her coaching expertise began as an athlete. Dampier rode for Santa Clara University for four years, and after college, she trained at several clubs around the country. She won a national championship title in single and represented the U.S. at the 2007 Pan Am Games in single and quadruple skulls, taking silver in the quad. In other words, and for people who don't understand rowing, she's kind of a stud. She's got high standards, high character, and a high ceiling because Riley Dampier is just getting started. I think you'll learn a lot from today's podcast. Well, I started rowing when I got to college. I played soccer throughout my youth, and uh, I chose my college based on the scenery, palm trees and sunshine, having grown up in the Northeast. And when I got there, I realized quickly that, wow, I had, for my entire childhood, based so much of my social circle, my, you know, how I, you know, kind of had any self-perception was through sport. You know, mm-hmm. that's, that was my lens always was as an, you know, what am I doing as an athlete? How am I doing as an athlete? And uh, when I got to college, I was so quick to get to the location. I hadn't really thought about, well, wait a second. I, 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 I still want to be an athlete. I want to be a student athlete here. Well, at the time, Santa Clara uh, University was one of the top NCAA Division One programs in the nation. And those women had been selected since about the age of nine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so... I could have been a ball girl playing soccer, or I could try a new sport. So I tried, saw the sign up, and uh, was picked out of a a line to uh, to try out the sport of rowing. You know, a bunch of the boys on the men's team just approached me and said, "Hey, you're tall. Why don't you try this sport?" And I said, "Okay, uh, sure, I'll try." It. And uh, man, that's like that was it. I made the team. You know, I made the cuts as a freshman in college, and that was like. That was it, hook, line, and sinker. I was, I was in. Never once have looked back on that. Right. Uh, so I started rowing in college, and um, which is very typical for our sport. Certainly, mm-hmm. you know, years ago, um, now it's a little more normal to uh, be rowing in high school. You've got a lot more high school rowers. Sure. Um, 
which is fantastic, of course. But at the time, start as a freshman, get into it, and uh, and I loved it. I had a great time. I, you know, there were definitely times that really tough and uh, not always the best coaches, but uh, but overall in my career, I've had some incredible coaches that certainly make up for the ones that were not that stellar. But sure. uh, then um, after college, I on my own decided, wow, I got to I got to try out for the national team. I really love this sport so much, and uh, I'm not done. You know, I got more right. to do here. So I just started training on my own, and I did that for about a year and a half. And I, you know, PR'd on a 2K erg test on my own, with my own training regimen, mm -hmm. and, uh, and taught myself how to skull with some help from some masters rowers along the way. And, uh, and I said, all right, I'm ready to join a program or I need to join a program, a structured program for national team development. So I did that um, a couple years out of school now, I'm about two years out of school now, and I get um, to my first program up in Seattle, Washington, and uh, went after it. Um, then I kind of got to the next stage where I was ready to move on to the next program, and I moved to DC, where I uh, was able to finally make the national team when I was about 29 years old for the first time. And, uh, and then the next year was uh, Beijing, the Olympics in 2008, and I, uh, I just missed the cut. I was in the last selection group, and, uh, and I ended up not making it. But I knew I was 30 then, and yep. it was time to, to move on. And I knew that going into it. I thought, well, okay, this is it. I got to go all in. Either right. I'm going to be you know, at the Olympic Games or I'm not. Either way, I, I need to step away from the sport. I need to move on. Um, sure. It's time. And, uh, and that's cool. Like it was, yeah. it was, I knew, you know, a lot of athletes struggle with that post, you know, post Olympics, post worlds, whatever it is. And they, uh, see that, man, maybe, well, wait a second, maybe right. I could keep going. Maybe, what, what if, what if mm -hmm. I didn't struggle with that? I just knew that hmm. was it. I'd gone all in and I didn't make it, but I knew what I was capable of. Nonetheless, I felt really good about that. So I, um, I went into coaching. I, I love that. And before we get in your coaching career, there's so there's a lot I want to unpack about that. First of all, it's funny that you say I didn't make it. Like uh, you were on the last cut before the Olympics, but you were on the national team. You're among the elite athletes in this sport in the world. Um, it is just funny. Like it, I mean, it's indicative of your mindset. But didn't make it is a flexible term, and by most right. standards, like yeah, of course you did. Um, I think it's funny. I want to go all the way back to Santa Clara because I actually have some friends. Um, some of whom listen to the podcast, or at least they tell me they do. Uh, but um, it, it's a beautiful place. Where where do you row? For dig into a little bit. For some people, uh, for those who don't know about um, sort of the culture of rowing, I know our kids. They just got on the water the other day, and that's like what makes you know the erg and all that stuff so worth it. So what is it like, especially in yeah. a beautiful place like Santa Clara? What what does right. a day look like? Well, right. Well, maybe. I mean, maybe that's exactly it. I'm not sure. I, you know, I grew up out 20 miles from Boston, and right. I, I knew about rowing, but I'd never really even seen it, which is, you know, crazy now looking back on that because it's a huge sport it's in the Northeast, and right. certainly Boston. Huge, there is a huge culture for it, mm -hmm. but uh, I would say that it took, you know, uh, being able to get on the water in the dead of winter when it's still about 50 degrees. Mm -hmm. <laughs> To keep me committed to it, right? I'm not sure, honestly, yeah. if I would have stuck with it had I started in the in the Northeast. But uh, but no, it was uh, we rode on a reservoir, Lexington Reservoir, which is just at the foothills of Santa Cruz, going you know out towards the coast there, and uh, it's just beautiful, absolutely beautiful. Just watching the sunrise over the hills, um, tucked down in this reservoir, that nah, was beautiful. It really was great. It's about 20 minute drive to campus. You kind of spend that time getting your head wrapped around the task in front of you. And uh, it was great. No, it was, it was a great experience. I mean, it was really, we didn't have a lot of money. The program was a division one program, but we really, um, you know, had to do a lot on our own. You know, I, I knew what it was to be an amateur athlete, I would say. Right, right. Right, right there, that transition in college. And, uh, but it was great because we were all, we were all in and, uh, you know, sometimes no, kind of financial rewards, no gear pack, none of that, you know, really tells you the kind of athletes that you're surrounded yourself with, the athletes okay. that don't need that stuff to show up every day. It was, well, it was just fantastic being surrounded by people like that, and I really appreciated it, and I and I got it, and we all did, that mm. we had chosen to be here. You know, we, we didn't, 
we weren't doing it for any you know financial reward whatever we're never going to get a nike scholarship or uh contracts we were never going to the nba <laughs> this right. is it and uh and that's you know that's a special uh group of people to surround yourself with for sure just we're in it because we love it period totally you you'd love yeah. to say that about all sports it's one of the things that we appreciate so much about like small school non-scholarship athletics is like you, you find the people um okay maybe millions aren't talking about you maybe they're not discussing you on espn but you find the people who truly do care about it and identify with something more, I think, something very, very human about the whole experience. Uh, but especially uh -huh. in a sport like rowing, uh, there, like glamour, if, if anyone, again, I wanted you to paint the picture of like, okay, it, it, in the, in the bay by the foothills, whatever, beautiful sunrise, th there's a, there's a beauty to rowing that is super unique. Uh, there's also a pain to rowing that if someone hasn't like jumped on an erg and just given it their all for a 2k, uh, that they might not understand. You need, I would assume, like really humble people who are willing to to grind together. Yeah, definitely. So. Right. The you know a lot of sports have that analysis of training time to competition time. I think rowing is definitely it's got to be up there in one of the top three sports that yeah. you know per hour of training relative to second of competition right. is you know, astronomical, really. It's just, you, you got to be in for the grind. You got to be in for the pain for a very small amount of time where you get to execute, you know, the race and the actual reason for it all. It's, uh, it is, it's pretty wild. Yeah. It's amazing. And, um, I've actually, so when I was out in grad school, I got to watch the head of the Charles and, and I'm, it's, for me, it's like, I knew all this. I've worked with rowers. I've, we've trained rowers in the weight room. I've seen them on the ERG. Um, in order to help, you know, in order to sort of identify with them, I've jumped on the erg and, and, and given it a, a shot. It is painful. Uh, but then to see it w with other boats and, and people sort of uh, navigating the waters and the turns and like, I'll, I'm going to be totally honest, I didn't really know what the coxswain did other than like keep people on rhythm at first. But to see the, the interplay of this stuff yeah, is, is yep. unbelievable. It's so cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Head of the Charles is really a unique experience in the world. I mean, you'll you wouldn't see that kind of display of you know world class athletes to you know the the old man that's been training his entire life who just wants to come out and give it one more go. I mean, just the yeah. range of athleticism and talent and just commitment to such a crazy sport. But it's beautiful. Head of the Charles is just a beautiful regatta for all of those reasons. And you get the fall in Boston. Can't beat it. That's exactly right. The atmosphere is just <laughs> unbelievable. Yeah. Um, okay. All right. So I want to bring this up again. So there's a 2K. Now, if I go wrong on this, please push back on me. When Gladly. we, when we, uh, when we, when I talk to a lot of our athletes, we try to destigmatize the 2K and meaning like they'll come in They'll come in the weight room, and for people who don't know the metric system, that's two thousand meters. That's kind of a joke. I hope people get that. Uh, but uh, but but it is it is the perfect distance. I we I, I equate it sometimes to like the four hundred in track, meaning like you like it's short enough that you can really go hard, and it's long enough that it's freaking exhausting. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, but but I do think, and and this is because well, it was like the eight hundred now, real quick. Yeah, yeah. Like I would say now with how fast we're, you know, guys are coming down the track, I'd say I would go to the eight. I equate yeah. it to 800, you know, that, that it's really, it's that next, that, that second lap around and just, Oh wow. When you really start to hit that wall, you know, yeah, I yeah. think the 400, those guys are going so fast. Your body's just not doing the same thing. I think right now we're looking at guys that are going that 800 where it's a sprint all the way, but man, that's just brutal. Yeah, that's so, a, that is a good comparison. I with 800, yeah. That's fair. That's No, that's a better comparison. See? Yeah. I've been corrected. Look at that. Uh, <laughs> and I guess in, in my mindset, so I've never run an 800 because I'm too soft, but I've tried the 400 and it's uh, – either way, you, you get the idea. It's like you – it's short enough that you can push and it's long enough that it's like excruciating in certain yeah. ways uh, if you're really trying. And – one one thing that we've tried to do in the weight room, we'll oftentimes we will get our athletes after they've been on the erg, so after their piece, and they will have, um, they'll have done a two k say, and it's funny they'll they'll do sometimes an equally exhausting workout, but in different sort of chunks and pieces, um, but when they come into the room after a two k, they're like extra exhausted, 
And I think there's a psychological component to that too. So one thing we say is like, let's just pretend that this is our first day rowing and you've never heard of it before. Um, you know, we, we try to get over those hurdles. Have you noticed, and this is, you know, we talk a lot about um, mental health and sort of the, the conversations within athletics that aren't, you know, aren't often as exposed. Um, I, I think there really is, if, if you overesteem something like the 2K, there is a very real potential of inducing anxiety in a way that, from my perspective, doesn't need to happen. And, and uh, before you jump into all your thoughts on that, I, would, I, I think there's a lot to, to dig into um, on the anxiety component side of things. But like when I did my first 2K, I was actually trying out for the uh, Harvard graduate uh, rowing team. And I like with very little experience. So I just, but it, in, I, I freely admit this. I was just a dummy about it. I just jumped on and like did it as hard as I could with mediocre form. And, uh, and that was it. Um, it was painful. It was hard, but I, but I had not yet built up any sort of psychological barrier to what the 2k was at that point. Right. Have you seen that? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. a little. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, definitely, definitely right. Just changing, changing the approach is is so valuable. Um, doing a uh, doing a two K workout instead of a test, mm -hmm. I think, is helpful too. Just right, the language that we use to talk about what's about to happen, I think, is really important. And uh, and I also think it's important to have a plan. Honestly, while you know, while there's so much value into being that, you know, that young novice who just is thrown into it, I don't know, I'm going to go. Um, and I'm working with um, athletes right now, we'll talk about that, that are part of the next Olympic hopeful program through the USOC, who have no experience with 2Ks and don't know any better and say, okay, yeah, sure, you want me to hold what split? Okay, sure, I don't know, sure. sure. Right. Uh, right. But, um, but I think it's important for those athletes that have started to put pressure on it. There's too much weight. You know, they've overvalued it in terms of, you know, where it should exist in their universe as an athlete. Um, mm -hmm. I think it's important to have a plan and uh, not go in with a hopeful performance, but an expected performance based on how you control the elements you can control and drive your attention towards the things that you do have control over, mm -hmm. like your breathing, stroke rate, things like that, just the sequence, the chain, the muscle chain, and how you initiate the drive, how you finish the drive, how you prepare the body on the recovery, but taking your attention away from the things that you can't control, like your level of pain, uh, I think is really valuable. And of course, man, is that a lot easier said than done. Sure. But um, as much as we can turn it into something that's, uh, you know, boxes to check if, if maybe that's the best way to look at it or just, okay, this is where I want to be at 200 meters in 500 meters in 750, 1k, you know, what do you want to, where do you want your attention to be and right. drive, you know, obviously that takes a lot of practice outside of just banging out two Ks, you know, right. shorter pieces, visualization, you know, I, I do a lot of workshopping on just the mental game. So, you know. yeah. I think it's amazing. Well, that, that's the perfect transition. Tell us a little bit more about um, where you're at as a coach right now and how you use some of those methods. Right. So I, uh, when I stop, I guess I'll start with when I was a little girl, I was about seven years old. I right out of the gate. I wanted to be a teacher. Hmm. That's what I wanted to do. I saw that uh, as a, just a really cool thing when I was a kid. And as I got older, um, it's something I always kept in the back of my head that I, I just really loved that I did a lot of tutoring in college and after college and just working with people, just watching that light bulb go off. Man, that was just so rewarding to me. And uh, so I always wanted to be a teacher. So when I was done with training, I was 30 and I really hadn't thought past that day. I, yeah. I didn't. And I think that that's really what you do have to do. If you're all in, like there, there's no well, I'll do grad school. Well, I'll do this. Like, man, you got to be, you got to be in it if you want to, you know, be able to use yourself as effectively as possible. So I got, uh, I went to a temp agency, got a desk job just so I could start making money. Um, and then I also was invited to sit in the motorboat with my coach, uh, whose name is Matt Madigan. I was invited to sit in the lunch and he said, well, I need help. Come out and help me. I mm -hmm. thought, I don't know if I'm ready for this. I'd really like a break from the boat, from rowing. 
And he's like, yeah, but you also know how much I need help. And based on what he had done for me, okay, I'm in, man. So I, I got in the launch and, uh, and again, haven't looked back. I, uh, I started as his assistant coach um, then, and then after two and a half years, he turned the reins over to me and actually I became the head coach of that program, uh, which was what you know, I'd certainly been working for. And by then I was really chomping at the bit to come into that role. I was ready for it. I had the energy for it. He had a lot of other things going on in his life. He had a beautiful family, a lot of small children and a, a great job. And I didn't have any of those things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was ready to just put all my attention on coaching. And that's what I did. Um, so I did that for another, uh, wow. So that would have been um, real quick. Let me do the math on that. So that was for six years. Um, I was the head coach of that program. And then I uh, realized it was time that I needed to change away from the program I was coaching. And I knew that this would be an opportunity to come coach at the National High Performance Center. And uh, and it was time to, to move on and do that. So here I am. I've been here now uh, just about two and a half years and uh, building the program here. So it's great. That's amazing. Tell me what it looks like uh, on the ground. National High Performance Center in Oklahoma City. Yeah, it's it's pretty fantastic. They uh, they they built this whole campus, uh, three different boathouses, and a whitewater center also where we have um, actually the whitewater slalom um, kayaking Olympic trials coming up this year as well. Um, so we've got whitewater, we've got the rowing, and just a lot of things in between as well. So it's it's high high tech really sharp it's just a, it's a beautiful campus a lot of the technology and space that i didn't have i was previously coaching in washington dc mm-hmm. where this is your space um this is where you put your boats put your oars and it's all uh, very contained and here man there's a ton of space to stretch out play with new equipment um and just try things out we've got a high altitude chamber here we have a rowing tank here which is a huge asset um we got to do a lot of cool cool things that we certainly don't have at a lot of places in the country for rowing. Yeah, it's amazing. And, and well, Oklahoma City is a perfect space for exactly what you just said to kind of stretch out the, um, isn't it one of the biggest cities in the US geographically? Geographically, yeah, yeah. it is. Yeah. Like, yeah, like number three or something, it's crazy. It's amazing. Um, <laughs> yeah. What is, what's college rowing like? Because I'll tell you, when I first, uh, we first came down for powerlifting, I don't know what it was, eight years ago probably at this point. Um, and, when I ha- I had a picture of Oklahoma in my mind coming from Chicago, and it wasn't one of uh, it wasn't rowing necessarily, which I associated with the Northeast. So, but there are there are rivers, there are bodies of water. Um, how, like why there? It's, I know exactly right. So I mean, it's just such a cool story. Basically, um, this river wasn't dams, and there were a few of the sorry, that's the Northern Canadian River that comes through Oklahoma City. And uh, the river hadn't been dammed, and there was a lot of big um, storms that had uh, created a lot of flooding. And downtown got flooded enough times that they said, "Man, we got to dam this river up. We got to clean it up." And uh, when they did that, a few of the kind of powers that be in the city, kind of movers and shakers um, at some of the big corporations and uh, and their friends, came down to the river and they said, "Wow, we got." What are we going to do with this? We got to do something with this place. Let's bring rowing here. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that happened basically just after 2000, in the early 2000s. And mm-hmm. uh, and off we went. Uh, it's, so it's pretty exciting. There we're actually celebrating 15 years of the head of the Oklahoma Regatta wow. um, this year. So in 2004 was our first regatta here, and the the building started after that. So they just saw there was a vision. And now I work for one of the men, um, the current executive director of the Boathouse Foundation here, Mike Knopp, uh, is just, he's a visionary. He, he just wants big things going on down here. And so it's an yeah. incredible, he's an incredible person to work for. And so it's, it's just a great energy. It's really exciting because it is growing. It is a new sport here. I'm constantly, you know, explaining the sport that we're even here to people right. that have grown up their entire lives in Oklahoma, right? They don't, they don't know it's here. And those that do, Think it's so cool, so exciting! Wow, this is really happening right here. So the energy of this city is—I just am so surprised. I too, coming from D.C., right? I, I lived, grew up outside of Boston, went to school just south of San Francisco, trained in 
uh, Seattle, for, in San Diego for a little while, DC. So I was touching the coast. Right. And I was, I was thinking, I'm not like I'm good on Oklahoma City. Like I don't, I don't need to be there. And I had been in, I asked to actually apply for an assistant coaching position here when it first started as a high performance center. Mm-hmm. And at the time, I was really committed to the athletes I was working with, and I said. No, I'm good because I want to continue with these athletes. But in the back of my head, too, I was saying, man, I'm probably not going to Oklahoma City. Like, really? Right, like, right. that's not that's not my vibe. And uh, I can tell you, Jim, I was I was I'm so surprised, you know, all the time by how incredible the quality of life here is and the opportunity to grow, you know, the sport and Olympic hopefuls here. It's, it's just great. That's so cool to hear. It's 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 cool to hear you talk about your energy is awesome and it's just you're right. It's like it's like being like an early investor. It's like here's this really blossoming well, I can thing. Create it. And you right. Can, that's right. The culture, you know, we we all of us here today, you know, are creating a culture whereas, you know, in the northeast, um the history is just beautiful mm-hmm. and rich and and amazing and it's it's incredible to be a part of and I was part of um, you know, a boathouse that is uh, I think uh, uh, approaching 175 years old, wow. uh, and that's it's so cool, right? The history is so cool. But here, there's also something to be said with no history. We're mm-hmm. writing history right now. That's We're right. creating it, and uh, and to be a part of that too is to you know change the the old boys club, if yep. you will, because there's a there's a big part of rowing is that culture, um, and yeah. uh, and it, that is what it is. And uh, you know I love going up against that as a female coach and being a part of it, yep. going against it. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. No, you're right. And it is, you please do go there. So like, um, have you come up, have you found that to be pretty true? I can imagine. And, and you won't go overboard, but it's not too hard to imagine like, um, the Northeast, um, founded by old boys, you know, and no yeah. disrespect to boys. Right. Um. <laughs> no, funny things like the locker rooms, you know, I, yeah the old clubs the locker room a maybe didn't even exist originally for women right and when women were invited to be in the boat clubs their locker room was like you know about the size of my office and the men's locker room was still huge and you know the big showers the long locker room um it's all of that so you know little things like that right and in here where i'm coaching now there's like we just don't have all of that baggage we're just it's it's not an issue that I'm a female coach here. Not that it was at all back in the Northeast, but it was just sure. more around you. That was around you. And here I'm a coach and there's 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 no history to correct, right. if you will, here. No, you know? that's fair. That that's totally fair. Even just from like a basic logistical standpoint, it's not there there are there isn't a big and well established <laughs> men's locker room and, and, right. and the <laughs> exactly. women's locker room's an afterthought. Right. It's just like right. we're gonna make a men's yeah. room and a right. women's room. Done. Yeah, done. Done yeah. exactly. So that's so right. So that's really refreshing too, and yeah. and to kind of build things rather than you know because I've come from such um, you know traditional entry into the sport. Um, you know, starting in college, going through this club system, I uh, I definitely am challenged all the time to think outside the box and do things differently than I did. Right. You know, going back to your point where a lot of coaches just get into it, you know, and they follow the people that influence them and mm-hmm. they respect it when they were coming through the ranks and, um, you know, enough YouTube watching, you know, okay, right. I got this coaching thing figured out. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, you, you use so much of your own experience to define who you are as a coach. And yeah. I've really had the opportunity here to change that and to just build a whole new way of doing things. And of course I draw from my experience and the coaches that I've worked for, but, um, and worked with, but I also, um, I, I get to build it all new and it's cool. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's perfect. That's like, that's probably how it should go. You know, um, definitely you should draw from your own experience. You should learn from the models who kind of came before you. It's a, it's a compilation of your own experience, the, the coaching and, and modeling and mentoring that you had. Um, and, and then hopefully best practice, which includes vision for the future and, and how do we expand and enhance. Uh, you mentioned the word culture. Uh, especially in a sport like rowing. So like, look, from an outside perspective, basketball is so obviously play that it's not surprising why people are drawn to it and kind of have fun in it. How do you make a uh, sport like rowing 
especially in those months where you can't be on the water and really get the full experience when you're inside on the erg, how do you in your place make it make it fun? How do you keep people engaged and showing up every day? Right. It's, it's so different. I think that the, the biggest thing to understand and accept is that the two athletes that pick rowing or basketball mm-hmm. are just different people. Yeah, that's right. Are, right. So, you know, a lot of us want to pull and we see some big basketball players rolling around. I, I was just at the Thunder game last night, actually, mm-hmm. which is really a, a great thing because they actually retired the jersey uh, of the first person that's having a jersey retired for them, oh, um, wow. Nick Carlson. And uh, he was never the best player. He was never that amazing, but he was a team player. Anyway, he just really cool mm-hmm. guy, really cool ceremony. 40,000 people watching your jersey getting retired. Amazing, you know, in person, let alone on TV. Yeah, that's never going to happen in rowing. So if you're a guy who wants the attention like that and and wants to be part of something that's all eyes are on you all the time in your personal life, outside, you know, on the court, and you get the money to back it up too, Mm -hmm. it's worth it, right? Man, that guy is just not, he's not getting in a boat. Right, right. Like those, those are two different people and, uh, and that's okay. You know, that's, that's two different things. So the, the culture of rowing is definitely, you're taking a people that in general are a lot more introverted, much more self-reliant and they, they see their, or they measure their successes based on what they want to get accomplished for themselves, right? Mm-hmm. That they, they see that there's a, a great deal of value in realizing what, you as an individual are capable of. And I work particularly for me as a coach, um, working with athletes that are in singles most of the time. So my guys don't get in the eight and aren't, you know, pushing along eight people with the coxswain in sync. I'm typically working at max with four people in a boat. Most of the time we train in singles and getting those people to work together and find value in the team culture is actually really challenging, but, um, I think it's really important. And I, and I certainly, that's the kind of culture I try and, um, you know, grow here is that it's important that what you're doing as an individual is how you measure your success, Mm -hmm. right? Because you're in it, you know, when you go to the start line, you're by yourself. I'm not there. You don't have a teammate by your side and you probably don't have that many fans either. Right. (laughs) Right. You can't bank on the crowd. You know, cheering you right. on. Um, but I think that uh, it's extremely important that as an individual, you realize how much strength you can get uh, to surround yourself with people that are on the same mission as you. Mm-hmm. While you're both not going to be at the Olympic starting line together, you need those people around you to help get you there. And the more you give yourself to those people, the better they get the better they get, the better you get. And it just, mm-hmm. right. It just grow and you grow together, um, in that way. And I think that that's really important. That's the kind of culture that I try to grow here and build here is that, uh, you need the team. I, you are doing this by yourself. Make no mistake. I'm not trying to put an artificial sure. team, you know, um, around you, but you're going to use these people around you. You're going to use me, do it, you know, use it to the best. You get better. We're gonna get better. You know, totally. coach and athletes. So I, it's so interesting because there's so there's so much um, crossover to powerlifting in that regard and um, mm-hmm. different sports. But but same idea. It's like resilience totally. and growth. Resilience and incremental growth are essential to your development. And then um, not only are you empowered by going through those things, by by just the act of being resilient is empowering. Uh, the act of even minute quantifiable improvements, that's empowering. And then that final piece of empowerment, like you said, is being surrounded by people who get that too. And, you know, in, in, in powerlifting, it's almost like uh, it's similar enough. You're not necessarily all rowing in cadence in the same direction, but but everyone scores out in their weight class. And only, uh, you know, you have a 10-person roster and only uh, by each one of those individual 10 performing at his or her best do you you achieve some sort of team success. So it's, it's really, and you're right, it attracts a certain sort of person. That's right. There's a self-selection going on. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, but again, it goes back to what I said about being a college athlete. 
um, in a in a sport like rowing for programs that aren't extremely well funded, which is most men's programs in the U.S. and um, and many of the women's programs. Um, you find an athlete here at the training center that is provided a lot of amazing things, but they still have to work on the side. They still have to figure out a way to make ends meet, and it's um, it's you know, there's just not the same rewards that you get. You you really, it's an intrinsic reward. I mean, you, right. you got to love what you're doing. That's it. I mean, there's there's really um, there's no way to get around that. There's no way to fake that, cheat that. It's uh, you got to be here um, because you love the thing that you're doing. So mm -hmm. it, it which is incredible to for me to be able to work with these athletes that say I'm I'm going to be an Olympian which is you know so uh not realistic right <laughs> yeah, yeah. Honest, for statistically like, it's right you're right statistically that is not a normal thing to want for yourself but man I love working with the athletes that are crazy enough to think that it's possible mm -hmm. and they ask me to be part of that journey I, I'm on board every time. I, it really gets me excited, and uh, and I love that opportunity for myself because it's a huge challenge for myself with every single athlete that walks in the door. Right. And uh, and I also think that wow, this is these the just really impressive people that have come here with um, ultimately far less resources than most other Olympic sports, and uh, and you still want to do it. You still want to get after it. That's that's not you know you're kind of crazy. That's yeah. not normal. I'm in. <laughs> I'm in. I love For that, that reason, I'm in. <laughs> yeah. No, I love that. And I wonder, uh, so maybe this, my next question won't, won't map on to what you're doing quite as much, or maybe will, I don't know. Um, the, the anxiety thing that we talked about earlier, the mindset stuff, do you find that because um, even within a self-selected sport, you're working with like a even smaller self-selected population, um, do, do the athletes you work with have better sort of control or balance uh, or do you still find some um, that, that's some psychological unbraiding and and you know uh, some ups and downs kind of occur along the way oh absolutely yeah. I mean it's hard for me to say you know to really compare to other sports since I haven't certainly coached at this level with or worked with athletes at this level um, you know in terms of what they're going through around competition and anxiety um, and around testing but I would say for sure, I think uh, at, at every level, I mean, at, at every level, certainly, you know, high performance athletes, as much time as we spend giving to mental training, mm -hmm. there is, there will always be, that. that's always part of it, you know, sure. and, and uh, I think that um, it's really hard to calculate when it's going to happen always I think that um, you know we can only give athletes as many tools as we can and then it is up to them and uh, and I always I, I always you know strive to put them in the best posi position to perform mm -hmm. but ultimately uh, I don't think that there's an exact formula for it right and that's the art of coaching that's the art of being uh, an athlete at the highest level so we'd certainly uh, ebb and flow as you said and you know, in that there's no timeouts, you know, when you're in a single racing, you can't, you know, take an off stroke, you can't just right. check out for a little while, you check out, everybody else is long gone in front of you. Um, and there's, you know, th that there's no break that you have to be dialed in for as long as you do for yeah. men, you know, that can be up to, you know, six minutes and 40 seconds to seven minutes, women's closer to eight minutes. Mm -hmm. It's a long time to just be dialed in on something right, um, right. At, the, at pushing your body to max. It's not like you're getting on a road bike, you know, and you got three hours ahead of you. Right. Yeah. Your mind can drift a little while because your legs are just going right. There's mm -hmm. not. Um, and then with, uh, when you're in the boat though, those, those seven minutes, right. you have every single stroke throughout that, which is, you know, usually equates to about 220 strokes, 220 strokes, you have got to be so dialed in yeah. and uh, that is really hard, you know, again, for for any athlete um, starting out or, you know, been in it, been in it for 20 years um, to commit to that. Yeah. You know, they can reel out a minute, maybe two minutes but to be in the zone for, for seven minutes. It's really challenging um, yeah, to go 220 for 220. Uh, yeah. That's a high <laughs> expectation. Uh, yeah. it, it's interesting. I, it, you're reminding me of, I'm thinking back to my own experience and, and, um, recognizing this idea that the, it, the, the 
it's not the paradox, but the potential double edge of this sword is the more invested you are, the more kind of it, it hurts when it doesn't go go well, uh, which is an interesting thing. And that's why, to be totally honest, it's why I love the idea of like a football play, player breaking down into tears after a game, win or lose. I just, I just, I love that very human side of it, the investment side. Um, there's also a little bit of a danger there. And I'm thinking back to, and I won't impose this on any, on any sport or anyone that I don't know, but I will say for myself, in, in college, if I had a bad practice, um, I wasn't right until I had a good practice. And, um, you know, and I wasn't at a national caliber level like you all, but, um, but that, that is clear. So I guess in, in, with that in mind, you mentioned the words tools, the word tools. Um, what sort of tools? Because you can't predict. And honestly, sometimes when people are going through some things, you, they put on a face and you just can't tell. It, it, it's, it's unknowable sort of. So what sort of tools would you say you uh, equip your athletes with so that when they do get to that point, um, they're ready? Even if it's just like, hey, you know, I, you know I'm a resource for you. The door is open or, or something like that. I think, um, well, first of all, we have uh, someone who's in sports psychology who oh, works awesome. with athletes. Yeah, cool. I just have – he works um, essentially for uh, – like on a retainer almost. Mm -hmm. So – as much as the athletes need to talk to him um, and work with him, they can do that on a quarterly basis. So that works out really well, and the athletes take advantage of that. The way I set it up is you are all obligated and required as a member of this program to go meet with him one time. Mm -hmm. After that, you establish that connection. I'm out of the equation, and this is your, sure. this is your tool to use. If you use it well, great. If you're not going to use it, You've been given the tools, so. right. um, but I also can't control that. I can't be on these guys at this age, especially. You know, yeah. I've worked with primarily, um, you know, post collegiate athletes, and they're adults, and they're mm -hmm. going to do whatever. They're not going to do it. Um, but I think he he's a great resource. Um, and then, in addition to that, certainly making sure that they understand that mental wellness is really important to me. Doing the safe sport. Um, for all of them and for myself and and also making sure that we've got an online toolbox like in google drive mm -hmm. and in that i've got a lot of good resources that i've pulled up and i try not to inundate them with you know sure. 50 documents on mental wellness but i use a couple that i put up that i feel like are quick reads and quick little reminders that yep. um that it's uh that it's a real part of the equation i think there are a lot of athletes and you know, I don't know if rowing um, has more of these kinds of athletes or less, but I think I've definitely encountered a ton of athletes, almost part of this old boys club where you're just going to go as hard as you can. And that's all that matters. Right. It's, um, you know, and I actually got pushed back when I started working with a sports psychologist at the last club that I coached with because the old boys on the board said, why are we spending this money so that they can, you know, lie on a couch and talk to a therapist? Like, right. no, man, that, first of all, your your vision of a sports psychologist right right exactly second of all this is if we don't address mental health and you know in the mental game what's the point of any of this mm -hmm. you know that's the driver if the brain's not on board the brain's not driving it doesn't matter how hard we work the body totally. it like does not matter so anyway so i've you know i've had to deal with that but i think that um it's it, it's just such an important piece of the puzzle. Like we can, we just we can't leave it out at this level. You absolutely can't leave it out. No uh, doubt. So so anyway, I had one more thought there, but I lost it. But it <laughs> That's right. I know. <laughs> the tools, yeah. But I, yes. I you know I I think it's you know I I certainly keep you know open to a policy. You know mm -hmm. I come you know and talk to me. And I think ultimately my last point here is that. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to have bad days. You're going to have bad strokes. Mm -hmm. um, and that's not a problem. That's an important part of the learning experience, right? right? A growing experience as an athlete, for sure. I think the biggest piece of that is what you do next. What do you do with those mistakes? What do you do with those bad strokes? What do you do with that bad day? That is ultimately the most important piece of the puzzle, for sure, is how do you grow do you, do you just push it off? Do you say, huh, do you open it up and say, huh, 
what what went wrong? Why did that not work? Right. You know, and if you're not doing that and I'm just ingrained that in the athletes, what what is what went wrong? And if you can't approach that scenario next time with a better view and a you know, you might make a mistake again, but we're just we gotta keep going through that process. Right. So I, I think that that's the biggest thing about um, you know, improvement, right? Is is going totally. through that process. I and yeah, you're, you're right. Bad days, mentally bad days. Sure, maybe you're off. You're feeling you're feeling terrible. You've had that bad bad practice, but a that doesn't define you as a person, right? right? You're not a good person or a bad person. You had a good day or a bad day, and uh, and that what what do you do with that bad experience? Totally, how right. do you have the better practice next time? That's it. That's exactly right. I think you're I think you're on something that's so important. And when we talk about you talk about, well, what's the point? Well, I, so much of the point of sports, in my opinion, is, as we've mentioned, is the educational platform it presents. What you're teaching should go well beyond. Like you said, uh, as a young woman at 30, you were done as, a, as an athlete. So if, if what you learned didn't go transfer to the rest of your life, um, you know, it was just it was fun back then. But we, I got 50, 60 years to go still. What do I do? Um, and, and that's such an important that idea, I, I made a note, uh, failure as feedback, right? Like you mentioned differentiating um, who right. you are from what you do. And I think that's a really refreshing thing. I think we start to build an identity in who we are along the course of a lifetime. But the, but the what you do is obviously distinguishable from who you are. And in the what you do realm, if you can d- disentangle those and, and identify that your sport is what you do, then failures in that sport provide incredible feedback. And it's like, uh, there's a reason. There's a reason your times uh, went up instead of down, potentially. There's a reason for X, Y, and Z. And only when you disentangle the two, look at one sort of in isolation and analyze your behaviors up against it, can you really move on? And I think it's funny. This is one of the things that we're so passionate about is that's something that has to happen in life also. Uh, If you have a bad day of work, if you've got a day where you're feeling mentally off, whatever it might be, recognize that that's not you, you know, that's, right. that's what happened today and, and start to start to look at your process. Relationships, right? Yeah. Totally. With peers at work, uh, in relationships, um, you know, with men and women, like just, you were going to make mistakes. Yep. <laughs> the worst thing that we can do is repeat those mistakes, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Right. So that's, yeah. a, I think that's a tough way. We found that that is sometimes tough to confront. Because you also in that have to say, oh, yeah, here's what I did wrong to yield this behavior. It's much easier to be like, oh, I had a bad day. I hope tomorrow's better. Exactly. You know? Exactly. Just, yeah, shirk responsibility. Man, I can't stand that. Like when, yeah, when when the blame game comes up. Well, I mean, this is why this happened. Mm -hmm. Well, no, that's not, that's actually not something that happened. You got to look at, you know, what did, what were you doing? Right. Nothing to you here. That's right. <laughs> what you That's do? right. That's right. And and our environments are becoming in, increasingly difficult to navigate, but we're still the ones navigating. Like you know, you you were on your phone for an extra hour last night, slept less than you were supposed to, and ate a whole bunch of Oreos. And like like that was you. You made those decisions. Understandable that those are attractive things, but you you were still the one that did that. Right. So, and what do you want more? I mean, ultimately, right. that's what it comes down to. Like, we ask ourselves two questions, and I'm I'm definitely stealing the first phrase from um a, from the Australian national team and the GB national team. But um, a while ago, they asked themselves, "Will it make the boat go faster?" You know, that's that's what I've put up at the beginning of each season for them to reflect on. Love that. Whether you're here training, whether you're at home on a Saturday night. Will what you're doing make the boat go faster? You know, and sometimes that is blowing off some steam, going mm-hmm. out, forgetting that you're an athlete for a couple hours. Like that sure. is that's okay. That's part of it. But you know, but are two nights in a row of that making the boat fast? You know, mm-hmm. really have to be honest with yourself, and you have to. I just ask for that honest reflection. Will it make the boat go faster? You know, that's what it comes down to. And uh, I think that that. You know, that answers a lot of questions, right? Solves a lot of problems. And and ultimately, too, just driving home the the idea that, A, my number one principle here is own your role in your success. Mm-hmm. That's it. Number one principle. They're looking at it every day. Own your role in your success. Own your role. That, I love that. That is where, you, where, where your decisions come from. 
right? You don't get to say, oh, well, coach, the training program. Right. Uh, I'm sorry, what? How, you know, what'd you have for breakfast? Oh, I, I didn't eat breakfast. I don't eat breakfast before I row. Right. I, like, are you joking? You're going to be on the water for three hours right now. We, we put nothing in our body since 7 p.m. Right. Okay. <laughs> but, but I think that um, the other part of it, too, is right, is where I was going with that is that, you know, what do you want the most? Because ultimately, we do the things that we want. Mm -hmm. We can kind of pretend that, you know, we're making decisions for the right reasons and, oh, well, I need to do this. And ultimately, no, the human mind is, is designed to do what it wants, right? right. It, it, you're going to be doing the thing you want. And if you want to more be going out, getting a beer, you know, every night of the week, you want to be staying up late, you want to be, you know, on the phone with your girlfriend until 1am, you, you want to be doing all these things, uh, you want to do those more than you want to become an Olympian, mm -hmm. the, like period, end of story, it's yeah. black and white, totally. You know, and I think that that's important for athletes to really be honest with themselves about, when it, it's not when it's convenient for you, mm -hmm. it's all the time, you don't get to turn this on and off, well, oh yeah, no, I get it coach, I get it coach, but I got a wedding I have to go to this weekend. So just this one time, it's like, no, it's no, there's no exception to this one. Right, right, <laughs> right. It's interesting. And I, and I hope and and no judgment in that, like you say, it's just as clear and obvious as you're saying <laughs> uh, the cornerstone question that we ask. Well, first of all, we have, we have a workshop we call character by design workshop. And the very first question we ask people is what do you want? We're not going to come in and demand oh. that this is, you know, this is how it goes. Trust me you know, we have this experience. It's what do you all want? We'll outline it. We'll help articulate a process that will get you there. But then every step of the way, you've got to come back to, um, our cornerstone question, which is kind of like you said, does your behavior match your goal? And you just have to answer it. And again, no judgment, but, right. but for the people who can routinely say, no, my behavior does not match my goal. It's time to either change your behavior or establish a new goal, you know, cause exactly. Cause that's get it. A new, right. You're, you're, you're spending a lot of time on something that if it's not the thing that you want, the, the reward at the end, you know, being an Olympic athlete, right. if, get find something else to do with all of this time because you have given a lot of time to this, right. but that doesn't, you know, that doesn't mean that you're going to get there if you're doing all these other things outside of, you know, the training. Uh, so, yeah, no, I think that that's, that is, it's huge. It's huge, Way yeah. Well, I love it. I think and in terms of behavior matching goal, the goal right now is for our guy, Coach Nadalna, uh, to ask you a few quick-hitting lightning round questions. How do you feel about this? Right. Are you prepared? No, not at all. Not as good. That's exactly how we want the lightning round to go. Good. All right. The lightning round. They were not on the list of questions that I sent you. Oh, nice. Yikes. <laughs> We don't want any preparation. We want honest answers. So first one, what was the first job you ever had? I worked at a farm stand on Route 1 in Westport, Connecticut. And farm stand meaning what exactly? Because I don't know. Uh, so, yeah, we had fresh produce during the summer. And so I was, uh, I was just helping making sure that those beefsteak tomatoes were not getting um, you know, stems in them and that everything was staying out there looking good, uh, for the, uh, people of Westport. Yep. Quality <laughs> control. I like it. Exactly. exactly. Basically cashier and quality control. Exactly. <laughs> what does a successful day for you look like? Really? It comes down to getting at least one athlete to have one of those light bulbs go off. I'd realized I think I spent a lot of time early in my career just trying to make it so perfect and want everybody to have the best experience when they're, you know, in a training session with me as a coach. And that's just not possible. It's just not. I can't. There's too many variables in that equation. Uh, so I, I, I find that I feel really good and that I've succeeded if I can see one change in direction from one athlete, you know, mentally or physically, right, in, in their technique or their approach to a training session. If I can see that they've deviated based on something that I've given them, I'm in. I, I think that, that that's, for me, success. I've, I've had a successful day, and I define it as a coach, too. You know, I think that I define a great deal of my success on uh, on how well I'm doing as a coach, and uh, and that's, that's it, just changing one person. Love that. So... 
Jim, I don't, I don't know if he mentioned this, but uh, Jim and I both have background as strength and conditioning coaches. So that's our day job. Uh, we work with young athletes in the weight room. Now, for us, or I guess I should speak for myself only, like high volume squats were always a workout that either for myself, if I had to do them, it was kind of like, oh man, you know, here we go. Better get your mind right. Uh, what would you say is the equivalent of that in your sport? So for rowing, I know we touched on the 2K, but is there another workout that comes to mind either for you as an athlete or you as a coach where you're like, yeah, this is going to crush you a little bit today? So, well, real quick, I have one quick question for you. So what's high volume for you guys? So like is, how many reps would that be or how much time? Yeah, I would say probably in like the 10 plus range. Um, I know 10, 10 by 10. Reps in, uh, 10 by 10 is our German volume training phase. That'll uh, make its way every now and again. Did you say German? German volume training. Yeah, 10 by 10. Um, that's a fun one. I know I know my athletes. Uh, shout out to those guys. They look forward to those days. Um, yeah, I bet. Yeah. <laughs> well, so, but uh, my, mine would be the equivalent um, as an athlete. I don't, I've, I've done it a couple times as a coach, but I find other ways in addition to 2K to kind of manage the approach to such a long period of time as seven minutes on the water, uh, as I mentioned earlier. So our 10 by 10 in rowing was administered when I was an athlete rowing for a Bulgarian coach in Seattle. And he was old school, Eastern European, and uh, he had us do squats for seven minutes straight at about 28 strokes a minute. So we did 28 squats per minute for seven minutes straight. And then we did bench pull. So I don't know if you guys have seen a bench pull, right? But you lie prone and you bring the bar to you, right? And then yeah. you drop it. So I, so the negative is just a drop. You're not holding yeah. the bar on the way down. You just, and you drop it into two tires, lift it, drop it, lift it, drop it for seven minutes at about that same stroke rate. So it's, that was gnarly. That was definitely one of the hardest things I've done in my life, and we did it about twice a quarter. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's... <laughs> yeah, it was insane. It was insane. I think the women, I was, I mean, I was, I was a small athlete, too. I wasn't that strong. I would say that we had to do something like, I don't know, uh, I want to say 65 pounds. The women did it, and the men did it close to, like, 115, 120 for squats. So, you know, pretty low weight, but nonetheless, seven minutes straight was insane. Yep. So that, that would like be that. my equivalent. Again, I haven't done that. I've probably done it twice in my entire coaching career just to give athletes the appreciation for the Eastern European old school way of doing things that right. I was subjected to. <laughs> well, that uh, some variation of that may make an appearance in my weight room in the near future. So <laughs> I will make sure that uh, right, I give right, the please. feedback. My athletes finds its way to you, their feedback. Um, yeah, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to say, this is who you should blame, uh, not my fault. Um, well, the, right, the thought behind that is if you can squat for seven minutes straight, you're going to be able to take a boat down the course for seven minutes straight, no problem. Yeah, it's, it's, as it turns out, it's not quite that simple. <laughs> but, but that was kind of the thought behind that. I get the, I get the idea, yeah. Yeah, um, right. <laughs> What is one habit or piece of technology that you feel uh, makes you more successful? Yeah, I think that uh, looking at technology, when I thought about this question, yeah, I think that the biggest impact is um, in, is the technology piece, and that's using Training Peaks. So I use the Training Peaks platform. Um, I have a coach account. All my athletes are um, in Training Peaks themselves, you, you, typically on their phones. They use the app, and everything that they do is uploaded, and that's what I look at and how I, I record their data and evaluate their data or their, their workouts, their training sessions, and how I um, predict as much as I can where they're going to be um, for the next training session, the next week, the next training cycle. So training peaks, I think, because I don't have an assistant coach here, full-time assistant coach. So my assistant coach is training peaks. Yep. Okay. So that was the biggest one. Yep. Uh, so we, you and Jim also touched a lot on kind of the mental side of the sport, especially your sport. Did you, while you were an athlete or 
Yeah, while you were an athlete, did you have anything like a mantra or an area of focus that that you really used while competing or while training? Uh, well, as an athlete, I'll tell you, I guess what really stands out in your uh, lightning round question, the, the quick answer, the first thing that comes to mind is when I was an athlete, a young athlete, um, in my first real national team development program, I was working with a chiropractor. I had some back issues, making an adjustment from college to be brine to sculling. And uh, that chiropractor introduced me to tapping. So he, and he worked with me on that. Um, so my biggest obstacle as an athlete um, was uh, getting ready for a race and it was a really windy day. So wind, you know, big chop, that made, that gave me a lot of anxiety. I got really tense, you know, all the things opposite of what I needed to perform well. Um, and. Uh, and so I got into a routine of tapping and that made, um, that made a huge difference is you kind of, I saw the water and I just tapped out the water basically and what it was doing to me. And I just was able to release it and push it away. And that made a huge difference. So, um, I haven't found anybody since then who's done a really great job as he did with me, um, unfortunately here in, in Oklahoma city, but I would love to find, um, or if you guys have resources or know anybody that does that. And do you know what I mean? You guys, have you seen it? Have you used it? Uh, no, that was it. I was actually just going to follow up with that, yeah. that question, the, the tapping. So, tapping. so I can send you guys a great, um, cause I've talked about it and I haven't personally, but I've heard other coaches talk about it in, um, workshops and seminars, but, um, it's used a lot in baseball mm. actually. So like a pitcher who's getting ready to go to the mound might just like tap out what's about to happen and he's and what they're doing is they're tapping on pressure you tap on pressure points and you kind of walk around your face your chest um maybe your shoulders the back of your head and uh and it's just this really cool it's like um, you know it's just a, a, another form of meditation but you're but you're you're touching these points on your body they're going to help you release and you know it's it's like a little the eastern meets western yeah. uh, you know approach to things but, uh, but I'll send you guys this great, really great clip that I was shown um, later on on YouTube of a, of a young pitcher getting ready to go to the mound and he's just going through. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's really neat. I don't know why it's not used more. We don't see it more because um, in my very small experience, I thought it was fantastic when I do see professional athletes using it. I, like it's so cool. I think it's, it's, a, it's like away from visualizing and maybe doing anything that people think is like too touchy feely or too like, you know, finding your chi or whatever. Yeah. It's like you're that I feel like you might look a little funny, but it's like you're doing something, you know, like that tap. It's cool. Again, I don't know the science behind it, but, I, but it works. <laughs> it's like, uh, forgive me for this bad pun, but it's like tapping into the idea of mindfulness without actually yeah. naming it. Yeah, uh, exactly. That putting like that stigma that's attached to that, right? You're right. just, you're just tapping. That's all you're doing. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. I'd, I'd, I'd love to see that. Please share that with yeah, us. Yeah, it's um, cool. Yep. This lightning round is not going, the, the lightning part is, uh, has fallen <laughs> off, but that's okay yeah. because uh, your answers are fantastic. Um, <laughs> So one thing that we ask a lot of the people that we have sit down with us is for their kind coach nomination. And that is a coach in their life who was tough on them when they needed to be, but also showed that kindness and that compassion in those similar moments, right? Is there a coach in your life or in your career who sticks out? Yeah, absolutely. My, my coach in that last run up to the Beijing games, he was my coach um, in DC his name is Matt Madigan, and he's still coaching there today. And he was the coach that I got in the motorboat with, and then he handed the program off to me. Um, but he is still very much coaching. And uh, at the time, he for sure really wanted us to succeed. He would drive us. He wanted us to be so competitive and just really go after each other on the water. But then after the water, you know, after a training session, he'd, he'd make sure that. Uh, you know, we, we were okay. We, you know, he, he remembered what it was like to be an athlete. He was able to be empathetic and that was really clear. You know, he and his wife would make breakfast for all of us, um, in the springtime before the racing season began. And, uh, he, you know, he really took care of us, um, off the water, you know, without, without it being, um, you know, overbearing at all. He just, 
I get it. I remember what it's like to be an athlete and I care about your experience. And then we get on the water and he would just be on us to be as, as tough and as, you know, driving as possible. So yeah, that would be him for sure. Last question. You are a leader in this field. So what advice would you give to a future leader who hopes to embark on a similar journey? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I really thought about that for a while. So not that I have a great answer, but I did think about it for a while. Uh, but, uh, but I think that, and I kind of touched on it earlier with Jen, is that I think that if I could look back at myself starting out as a coach, you, you know, you, you only know what you know. And so you attach value to a very narrow window when you start out as a coach, because that's all you know. And each piece, you know, each tree, if you will, in the forest is so critical, so important, but there's only like five trees and you're just like staring at them, analyzing them and you want them to be perfect. And that's what I, I, I know that I did. I just got too over, um, you know, over focused on a few things and wanted them, each one of them to be perfect. And that, and if they weren't, I, that was my frustration. That was when I felt like I was really doing a bad job. And certainly now I realize, man, you got to look at the forest. You got to be able to look at that, you know, stand back, see the 30,000 foot view on what, why is that thing so important? You know, now I have many more trees than I did when I started out, but what is the value of this tree when I step back and look at the 30,000 foot view? Like what, what is the point of this? It doesn't, should it have this much value? And if it does, why, you know, and, and being able to be a little bit easy on yourself, this doesn't need to be perfect, but it does need to be with purpose. So I, I think that that's the biggest thing I would go back and tell myself, like it, this, it's not going to be perfect. Stop trying to make it perfect and, uh, and step back and see why, why you're doing this in the first place. The only thing I'm going to disagree on is that you said you didn't have a good answer and I would disagree with that. <laughs> I think that was a fantastic answer. <laughs> That's the end of the lightning round. All right. Hey, I, I love that. It doesn't have to be perfect, but it does have to have purpose. I think it's a really really good way to, to put it. And that's actually, it's a perfect full circle answer because that's kind of uh, everything that the Good Athlete Project is about. It's, it's uh, does your behavior match your goal as a coach, as an athlete, be intentional, um, design the culture and the atmosphere that you want. Do it on purpose, right? Don't let it sort of happen to you. Um, do it with, you know, yeah. intentionally. So, um, all right, well, listen, that you nailed it. Uh, so well done. I, I really enjoyed, uh, the conversation. I think people are going to get a lot out of it really. Um, Great. I hope so. Yeah. And thank you for all, thank you for all that you are doing. Seriously. I think we need, um, like not only for the sport in the place that you're in right now, but for rowing culture and, and the community at large. Um, I think it's amazing. So, so. yeah, thank you very much, Jen. Thank you both guys. I really appreciate you inviting me to do this. This was a lot of fun. This week's episode is brought to you by Remind Recover. Remind Recover is a supplement that helps athletes support brain health. Similar to how you drink a protein shake to help your muscles recover after a workout, Remind Recover has been scientifically formulated to give you the nutritional building blocks to help support healthy brain function. I am a huge fan of Remind Recover. It is as close to the science as any supplement I've seen, and feel free to check out their website for more. It's remindrecover.com. And when you go there, if you want to place an order, and I recommend it, use the code GOODATHLETE for a discount on checkout.